0: So won't you please My heart return
1: And welcome to episode 1454 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Raleigh of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hi, welcome Hi. home. Thank you. I am home. It's You're nice to home. be home. Yeah. yeah. had a nice trip. Okay,
2: good. I was just about to ask, did (laughs) you have a good trip, Bensi? We got to get our timing back.
1: I know, right. Getting back (laughs) in the swing of things. Yeah, it was nice. We went to England. It rained every day, but that's kind of what you expect, I think, when you go to Cornwall in November. We were told (laughs) to expect that. We brought our wellies, so we were prepared, and we got to see some nice rainbows, which is the upside of rain. So, yeah, it was good.
2: Awesome, well we tried to keep the home fires burning While you were gone
1: You did, they're blazing, they're <laughs> roaring You did a great job I, I got the authentic Effectively Wild listener experience Because I didn't ask you <laughs> what you were doing Or when you were doing it So I was just opening my app And refreshing and wondering Will there be a new Effectively Wild episode And a couple times there was And that was exciting And then I got to listen to it Totally surprised and it was great I would, uh, I would subscribe to this podcast Based Aww. on those couple episodes that was well, good.
2: I'm glad that you. I'm glad you felt that way. We decided to to go a little weird. Yeah, which is hardly surprising, <laughs> and people seem to have come along with us during our weirdness. So yes, uh, I'm, we appreciate their generosity, and uh, you uh, also seemingly liking it. At least not enough to be like. So next time I'm. Going <laughs> <on.">
1: <laughs> no, I liked it a lot. I have so good. many questions about how it <laughs> came about and how long this was in the works and just how you did it. I assume. That you, were, you, you scripted it and you were reading from scripts, although it didn't sound very scripted, but I, I assume you must have.
2: I will give credit where it is due, which is that, uh, especially since you liked it, I told Sam that if you did not like the episode, <laughs> that we could blame it on me. But since you did like it, I will give uh, the credit where it is due, which is uh, Sam found this whole thing. He yeah. uh, found the original saber piece that outlined the game and decided he wanted to engage in some... Uh, effectively wild experimentation so Uh he wrote the the bulk of that script and then you know there were moments in there which i imagine were kind of obvious where we we bantered a bit and Mm -hmm. uh went went off script and we maybe benefited from a bit of uh dylan's (laughs) editing assistance as we usually do but yeah we we read from a script it was hard made me sympathetic to broadcasters (laughs)
1: yeah (sighs) did you do a rehearsal like did you time it so that you knew that it would take roughly as long as the actual game took
2: I think we each read through it. Sam read through it, I think, a couple more times than I did, which Dylan could probably tell in the edits. But, yeah, we, he he kind of gamed it out, um, and we had set set times we were trying to hit. And I think we were confident in our ability to talk quickly because we, mm-hmm. we have demonstrated that skill
1: in the past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah. Well, that was a delight. And uh, my only regret is that I've seen people saying Ben must have hated this idea so they had Aww. to wait till he was gone. No. I didn't know. This was a no, total surprise to me. Know. I don't know how long Sam was sitting on this thing. Could have been years for all yeah, I know. Yeah.
2: I have I don't I don't quite know how long. I don't <laughs> think that I don't think that he was worried that you would hate it especially, but <laughs> I think that, you know, it seemed like we we had some episodes to fill, so it seemed like a good opportunity to do it.
1: Yeah, it's the off-season. That's yeah. when we get weird or yeah. weirder. We're weirder. always pretty weird, but <laughs> <laughs> even by our standards. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, if if you or Sam are sitting on any other weird ideas, let's do them because I'm all for experimenting with the form because we're seven and a half years into this thing and (laughs) almost 1500 episodes and anything to keep it fresh. Jeff and I talked last year about maybe doing some kind of reported episode, like a narrative, like a Mm. 30 for 30, except effectively wild. So on some weird, strange, silly subject that would never actually be considered deserving of a 30 for 30, but maybe for us so something like that except then he had his whole job thing and i had my book and we never got around to it but yeah let's let's keep pushing the boundaries on what an effectively wild episode can be not just banter not just interviews but also radio plays i guess radio plays yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah
2: I think we can uh, we can get a little bit creative I will say I enjoy talking to you very much it was very nice to have a chance to chat with Sam a bit more yeah. but it did make me appreciate greatly the amount of work that you and Dylan put into each episode of this mm, yes I have some podcast editing experience from doing Van Graf's audio stuff but it's it's a little more straightforward and you know we only ever just have that one song <laughs> so yeah. yeah it made me uh, appreciate Appreciate all the, the work that you do for Our listeners and for your co-hosts So uh, <laughs> we're, we're happy to have you back For a variety of reasons, not the least Of which is I no longer will have the anxiety Of picking the right song For the mm, intro yes. and outro It's, it's quite stressful yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, well that was fancy there was, It was well produced, there was a national anthem In there, there was uh, <laughs> the sound of Someone speaking from very far away That was embedded in there So yeah, that was uh, some production Trickery
2: Well, I, those those two bits of production we can credit Sam with but um you know selecting train related songs that were not done by the group train I get all the credit for that
1: <laughs> yeah thank you for,
0: for You're going with the absolutely very obvious one absolutely not <laughs>
1: So I hope that we will have a treat today, too. We have not yet recorded it, but if you're hearing it, that means that we will have recorded it. So this is an interview that I've been hoping to do for a while now. We will be speaking to Eddie Robinson, who is the second oldest living major leaguer. His 99th birthday is coming up next month. His nickname was The Big Easy, and he has had just an amazing baseball life. He was a player, a lefty swinging, righty throwing first baseman and a good one four-time all-star got mvp votes in three seasons he had power he walked much more than he struck out made his major league debut in 1942 Then went off and served in the Navy for three years, came back and played until 1957. Played for seven teams and later worked, I think, for another nine. So he was employed by 16 teams in total, two more than Edwin Jackson. But he was on the 1948 Cleveland team that won the World Series, the last Cleveland team to win the World Series. He's the only living player from that team. He was on the great Yankees teams in the mid-50s. Went on to be... Everything else you can be in baseball Basically a a coach and A GM for years with the Rangers and a scout and a Farm director and he was In baseball for 65 years Or so and he still pays attention To the game and he just saw so much and played with so many people and against so many people that I've just been very eager to talk to him. And he's kind of an independent thinker, too. He was ahead of his time in some respects, and he was even an important figure in sabermetric history. Because in 1981, when he was GM of the Rangers, he hired Craig Wright, who was the first person ever to work for a team with the title of sabermetrician. So... We will talk to him about all of that. I always enjoy the off season as a time when we can just talk to some players from earlier eras. Mm-hmm. Eddie Robinson was born in 1920, which was just a few years after the game that you and Sam <laughs> were talking about on the previous <laughs> episode. So he's seen some baseball in his life. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah um, when you suggested that we do this today and the timing worked out, I, I didn't realize that he had co-authored an autobiography. Yes. And now having done some reading in advance of us talking to him, I really want to read this book because what an yes. incredible life this guy has lived.
1: Yes, very much so. Yeah. I will link to his autobiography in case you want to procure it. And he... Faced so many great legendary players, and maybe we will talk about some of them. But our old friend of the show, Ned Garver, he faced Ned Garver ninety-two times, hmm. and he owned Ned Garver. He uh, he hit two eighty-two, three eighty-five, twenty-six as a nine hundred six OPS against Ned Garver, who was a, a pretty good pitcher in his time too. So. It's nice to have connections between our players from previous eras of baseball. So we will get to Eddie shortly. A few things before we do. This is strange and silly and maybe something that you're aware of. But Jeff actually G-chatted me to wish me a happy vacation. And he just said, happy vacation. And he just sent me a screenshot of a baseball reference page. And I feel like maybe I've seen this before because it's one of those baseball reference pages that possibly gets tweeted when, like, Jeff and John Boyce will go back and forth (laughs) and just name weird baseball reference pages. But are you aware of Mike Fish? No. Mike Fish. (laughs) So Mike Fish is basically, like, off-brand Mike Trout. And (laughs) I love this. So Mike Trout, we know Mike Trout. Mike Fish is also an angels player or was he was born the same year as mike trout 1991 so he's 28 years old he was drafted by the angels in the 32nd round of the 2013 draft and he was a center fielder or at least uh, largely a center fielder he played other outfield positions too So you have Mike Fish, who played professionally from 2013 to 2016. He was in the independent leagues in 2016. Prior to that, he had risen as high as AA with the Angels. So at the same time you had Mike Trout as the face of the franchise and best player in baseball, you had Mike Fish, who was laboring away in obscurity in the Angels system. Same birth year as Trout, same position as Trout. Same vaguely fish related last name as Trout, except just the generic. He's like the off brand. He's the generic Mike Trout. He has the fish name, but the species of fish is not specified. And So he overlapped and I'd love to know what it was like to be Mike Fish in the angel system at the same time as Mike Trout.
2: I have a couple of things to say in response to this, the first (laughs) of which is that Mike Fish looks like, I'm looking at his baseball reference page now, and I... You know, one one could interpret what I am about to say as an insult because we are a scruffy uh, sort, but I don't mean it that way at all. Mike Fish looks like a baseball blogger. Yeah. <laughs> he, he looks like he could be a baseball
1: blogging yep, sort. Looks a little like Bauman. Yeah. He does look a little
2: bit <laughs> like Bauman. Yes. Without glasses in uh, in this yep. particular picture. But yes, he does have sort of a Bauman esque air to him. Mm-hmm. And we should clarify which uh, Mike Bauman we mean because there <laughs> right. is a Bauman baseball yeah. player. Not but the we, Orioles
1: pitcher. Yes. The we ringer mean, writer.
2: Yeah we mean our pal mike and also i am inclined to believe that jeff meant to perhaps insult me as the (laughs) off-brand effectively wild host
1: (laughs) oh that did not occur to me i i I, i'm joking yes i'm sure that's not
2: true but wow Mike, Mike Fish, Mike Fish is from is from New York. Yeah, from Albany. Even a northeast player. Yes, even a.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs)
2: Drafted drafted in 2013. Yes, my stars not not out of not out of high school, mind no. you. No, college he went
1: to Siena College in New York. Not really a baseball hotbed, I would no. assume. No, but yeah, if you were Mike Fish, would you have wanted to be in a fish friendly organization? <laughs> would you want to be on the Angels, or would you? Not want to be there because it's like I, I, if he were with some other team, it wouldn't be as notable. I mean, no. we would maybe remark on it, but not at length. But the fact that he was an Angels player playing the same position as yeah. child, same organization at the same time, same age. Uh, that's, I mean, I don't know whether people constantly made fun of him (laughs) for this like his his coaches his minor league managers who probably coached and managed Mike Trout are thinking oh we've got another Mike Fish name are are you the new Mike Trout did he have to like put up with expectations because people thought if you're an Angels draftee named Mike Fish something then you must be great I mean you've this is the organization of Tim Salmon and Mike Trout I mean it's a proud legacy of Fish surnames and (laughs) he really didn't quite <laughs> carry on that legacy
2: i uh, uh, i don't imagine it would be fun to be an outfielder of any sort or stripe in the angels organization with trout ahead of you. Like if you're going to do it, you need you need to be like a Joe Adele, right? You need to be a top prospect in baseball so that you feel like you're on some sort of even footing and and ideally you need to come along in sort of the moment that Adele has where, you know, we all know that eventually Mike Trout, best player perhaps ever, will still have to move off of center field because you Mm -hmm. know he'll age and that's just how these things things work and it'll be fine. He'll still be incredible and everyone will relax. That's not true. They will crow about it and feel very insecure as human <laughs> beings, but we will eventually relax. And so like there is a circumstance under which it is fine to be an outfield prospect in the Angels system, because we all know that even the very best player potentially ever, you know, is subject to time in the same way that we all are. Yes. But when you're a 32nd round draft pick, <laughs> Out of college and your name is literally Mike fish I think it's impressive that he kind of hung around the way that he did because I would have a hard time Not just reading that as um, the universe saying this isn't gonna happen for you friend."
1: Yeah, right Righty thrower, righty hitter. Oh my god! Like Mike Trout. <laughs> no Mike Trout is listed at six two two thirty five. Mike Fish six one two oh five. So <laughs> slightly smaller. <laughs> wow. I, I guess yeah. they, they threw him back. <laughs> he wasn't. <laughs>
2: <But> <laughs> the 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 Angels believe in catch and release. Is yeah. what you're trying to say. <laughs> but
1: you know, one inch and okay, thirty pounds. I guess is a significant difference even sure. over that size frame. But if yeah. you to see Mike fish from far away <laughs> just uh throwing and swinging from the right uh-huh. side. You might think is that Mike trout? No, it's just Mike fish.
2: Mike Fish now here is the really important question how sure are we that Mike Fish is actually Mike Fish's name is it possible that Mike Fish's name is Mike Trout and much like uh, a rookie uh, sort of giving way to a veteran on a on a big league roster Mm. who has his number and having to just take a different (laughs) number was his name Mike Trout and they're like look we have some bad news for you and then he was like "I I don't I I can't pick amongst the other fish yeah. couldn't possibly pick a favorite fish among the fish like all the fish so I shall be my
1: fish <laughs> yeah it could be oh and I'm looking now at his Siena College player page and it says if I could go anywhere in the world I would go to colon California. I've never been there. So he got to live his dream. He got to go to oh California. God. I assume, right? He played uh d- I think did he, he had play? S- well
2: he he had some he was on um he was on let's see
1: Inland Empires. Uh, yeah, yes. 66ers, uh, yeah 66ers, so, 66ers. Yeah, he was in, yeah. yeah. San he, Bernardino.
2: Yeah, he got to do a little uh a little
1: <laughs>
2: Cali. <laughs> he got to do a California stint. Mm-hmm. Man, he was in let's see. He was in the AZL – in 2013, mm-hmm. so that's probably before Eric would have been out there to see him. I'm gonna ask Eric if he ever saw this guy.
1: <laughs> yes, please slack him and if yeah. We a need scouting a report on we Mike need Fish. a Mike Fish scouting report for sure. <laughs> also from this page, oh, this is very relatable. The best piece of advice I have gotten is colon, do less. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think Mike Fish Might be my favorite baseball player
0: Wow I love
1: getting,
2: getting to know Mike Fish Major creative arts yeah. My favorite class at Siena is music improv music I don't know improv. what that means Is that, huh. a, is that like jazz?
1: Yeah, I, Freestyle I, I don't know Yeah,
2: <laughs> Pro sports team Green Bay Packers He's from New York I'd like to hear more about that His favorite yeah. animal is a cheetah Cool uh-huh.
1: Favorite color red got to go to a, a team yeah. with red uniforms And huh all right. Well, lucky number seven—the number of yeah. Mickey Mantle, who is often compared to Mike Trout. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm stretching, but do less. <laughs> That's like Mike Trout is like Mr. Work Ethic. He's always yeah. trying to do more, and Mike Fish is just like no, do less. Yeah. We, we can all. We can all <laughs> learn, do less. Learn a little from Mike Fish.
2: We should all take. We should all take vacations. Yeah. This is maybe now we understand why Jeff sent this to you. Perhaps he knew. <laughs> hey. Mike Fish's advice, do less. And you, Ben, were about to go do that. Yeah, well, a right. very well-deserved bit of doing less.
1: Yeah, I just did less. huh? And it worked out just fine.
2: Yeah, came back. Podcast was still here.
1: All right. So Mike Fish. I don't know what Mike Fish is up to these days. I'm sure he's gone on to a happy and productive post-baseball career or perhaps not given that his life motto is is do less and i don't know that that plays well in in interviews creative music major (laughs) i don't know about that (laughs) yeah yeah that's uh well i was an english major so i know the feeling mike fish (laughs) anyway if anyone knows the current whereabouts of mike fish if mike fish wants to come on the show we'd be happy to talk to him so glad to know you mike fish Yep. All right. So before we bring on Eddie, there wasn't much news, but I guess very briefly, just a quick little news roundup five minutes here. So there were some opt outs and some non opt outs. So Steven Strasburg did opt out and is a free agent. JD Martinez did not. So he is remaining with the Red Sox and I don't know that it was surprising for Strasburg to opt out. It's sort of a shock to the system coming right after the World Series, but he had three days to decide, and he did. I would say maybe slight surprise in that I sort of expected it to be a Kershaw situation where he never technically opted out or just used the opt-out as leverage, and and he may very well still return to the Nationals, but I wasn't sure it would ever even get to this point and it did and now maybe he will end up somewhere else we will see
2: yeah i still think that there is a not small possibility that he ends up back in dc but we you know when we were assembling our uh, top 50 free agents posts we were sort of operating under the assumption that he would be opting out so mm-hmm. well done Yep. Uh good job, Steven. Yep. You made my life easier, so thank you for that.
3: Mm-hmm. But
2: yes, he he opted out. JD opted to stay. I guess while you were gone, Araldus yep. Chapman reached an extension with the Yankees mm-hmm. uh, in lieu of opting out. Yeah. Um so those were a couple of the, the big ones that we weren't quite sure of. But
1: Yep. And JD Martinez Probably figured that the free agent market being the way it is, perhaps yeah. a 32 year old DH, as good as he is, he was not coming off a career year. He was coming off a very good year, but did not quite, I guess, rise to the level that he or Scott Boris thought that he would make more than the three and 62 or whatever he had coming yeah. to him. So. I would guess probably somewhat mixed feelings in Red Sox ownership front office circles about that because they had come out and said that they wanted to get under the competitive balance tax threshold and that it would be tough to do with both Martinez and Mookie Betts. So martinez opting out maybe would have gotten them out of that self-created <laughs> problem yeah. which is not really a problem but they've decided that it is one evidently <laughs> so now i guess that means that we get months more of Mookie betts trade rumors which is yeah. like the the last thing i want to be talking about yeah. that's, like that's gonna be an off-season storyline and yep. it's not one that i <laughs> i want to be talking about or think there's really any reason to be talking about no. if, if anything we should be talking about in extension, which maybe we will be, and maybe they will talk to him about an extension and maybe they will work out something where it's backloaded so that they can keep him and still be under that threshold for whatever reason. But clearly they have hired Heim Bloom, they've gotten rid of Dame Dabrowski, They want to keep winning, but they don't want to spend as much money as they've been spending. And now perhaps they will trade Mookie Betts or even the fact that we're like talking about him as a player who is potentially on the block is just silly and strange because he is like the definition of a franchise player and he is young and he's great. And there is no reason for a good team of means to even be considering not continuing to employ him.
2: Yeah, and there's been some speculation that perhaps having decided to stay that they would maybe look to move Martinez, but that seems given the contract quite difficult, although I <laughs> I don't know what's more difficult, moving a large contract or securing a prospect return that makes you feel good sure. about trading away your franchise player. Those yeah. both seem like very difficult <laughs> tasks.
1: Yeah. Good luck with either of those, yeah. Yeah,
2: writing a check seems much easier than either of those things. Yep. If, I, if I were ranking things that are hard and easy, <laughs> I'd, rank, uh-huh. I'd rank some things that way, so.
1: Yes. Anyway, I'm sure yeah. that we will be talking about that even though we'd really rather not probably, yeah. but that'll be something that we will return to. Other news, automated strike zone seems like it's going to be coming to some level or level of the minor leagues yeah. this this coming year. So it was tested of course in the Atlantic League, it was tested in the Arizona Fall League and now it is making its way into affiliated ball and we will see how it goes. So I know that There have been articles written. Rob Arthur wrote something following up on an earlier BP article about some of the technical hurdles that still remain. And I don't know. I'm not totally convinced by articles that say that we're not ready yet or that the technology can't handle it yet. I think there are still pluses and minuses here. And you and I will be very sad to lose catcher framing whenever this happens. But I understand why people consider not having batters be disadvantaged by something that they can't control, why why people consider that more important than catcher framing, which is a skill that has been part of baseball going back to the beginning, but has been recognized for its true value lately. And so there's been an even greater emphasis on it. But the idea that we can't make this work, like I know that there's still some hurdles and there's still some kinks to work out, but the idea that it wouldn't be better than what we have currently. Uh, To me, it just seems like even if the system is off a little bit, we know that the current system is off a lot all the time, and we're constantly reminded of that as we watch baseball games, which is why I think the momentum toward Robot ump's keeps building and is probably irresistible. We just have this situation now where we know more about the pitch location than the umpires do, and it's glaring as you follow along. So maybe, I mean, having to do it in real time you're going to get some glitches and you're going to get some kind of embarrassing situations that arise. And so because there will be some institutional resistance to this and the weight of tradition and all that, there's the idea that, well, we can't implement it until it's perfect. So if that's the standard perfection or or near perfection, then we're probably not there yet. If the standard is, can we be better or as good as human ups, then I don't know, we might very well be there, but maybe that's not good enough to actually make the change.
2: I think that... So having observed the RoboZone in action in Fall League, I think that there are two things that apart from appreciating framing that make me um, still quite nervous about this getting implemented. The first of which, and I think Rob pointed this out, I can't remember if he did it in that article or if he did it just on Twitter, but there is latency, right? There is some Mm -hmm. delay between when the ball hits the catcher's mitt and when you get a call in the field. And that latency, I will note, varied. (laughs) Umpire to umpire, there were some guys who took noticeably longer, and it's just a matter of a couple seconds right but noticeably longer than some of their fellows to relay the call that they had gotten in the headset you know stretched over the course of a game that that latency adds up right so there will be at a moment when the league is supposedly very concerned about pace of play you're introducing you know, a couple of minutes into into the game, which, you know, maybe we don't care about. We might not, but we should know that that will be one of the consequences of this. When Eric and I talked about this on FanGraphs Audio, you know, he noted, and there was, I think, something to this, that especially if, you know, you're waiting to see if a, if a ball is going to be, well ball is bad if a pitch is going to be called a strike and there's some you know there's some delay it can add some tension perhaps you enjoy that but there is Mm. a latency that i think will be noticeable to folks the other is that the zone is going to be pretty different than what fans are used to yes and and so and players right and so i think that you know, if we think the discourse around umpiring is bad now, just wait until they're calling an actual rulebook zone mm-hmm. that is going to look and feel very, very different than what we have grown accustomed to over the years. I don't know you know, if the idea behind robo is at least in part to improve our experience of the game because we're getting more accurate calls and thus are not so angry, I don't know that this will achieve that. But yeah, I think that we have to be uh, we have to be open to persuasion around new technology. We don't want to be grumps. Mm-hmm. We don't want to smoltz it. don't want to do that, even though after having to call a very rapidly played baseball game, I have new appreciation for the hard work that announcers do. Mm -hmm. But I think that we just need to be prepared that the implementation is going to be not just from a technological perspective, but from an expectations perspective, probably pretty rocky. And Mm -hmm. I don't know that we'll like it. We might not like it. We don't have to like new tech. We should be open to new tech, but we don't have to like it.
1: Yeah, anyone who who wants yeah. to hear about how this could go wrong, go back and listen to episode fourteen thirty three. Yeah. Where Sam and I talked to two Atlantic League players about all of the, the glitches and the problems and not knowing that this was coming and then the strike zone being different from what they were used to. So yes, I think that you would want a much more smooth introduction if you were to try it at the major league level. So this is probably still years away and yeah. we'll see how it goes in the minors and, and you might have to preemptively change the definition of the zone before you actually right. implement this just so that you're not getting that strike that doesn't seem like a strike.
2: Right. Right. Though, on the upside, as we have talked about, we will finally get accurate player heights. Yes. So that that part is good. Mm -hmm. The bad part is that I remain convinced that the machines will rise up and kill us all, and this feels like a furtherance (laughs) of that eventuality. So I'm bummed out by that. And also, and I've said this on other podcasts, the thing that struck me the most watching this in Fall League is that, you know, the guy's back there and he's got his little headset in and they, at least in the beginning of Fall League, were not telling the crap that he was calling an automated zone and so they would Mm. still yell at him. I don't know what we will do with that in terms of our manners, but it seems like we'll just still yell at umpires because fans like to yell at folks. But he's doing his thing and he's calling the game and guys are yelling at him and there was a Phillies fan swearing at him. And then a runner crossed home plate and he still had to get his little broom out and sweep (laughs) up. And it felt... Horrible. (laughs) So that part might only matter to me and the umpires, but it didn't feel great. So I'm excited. I'd rather talk about the auto zone than Mookie Betts getting traded. So maybe this will balance out in the long term.
1: It's ironic that you still need the human umps to clean the plate off because that's the thing that robots did first. Like robots came into our lives first by being able to clean up some dirt you spilled on something. That's how we we know them.
2: We need a baseball Roomba.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so can we combine the robot umps and the Roomba? Can it be uh, something that calls pitches but also sweeps the plate? I don't know.
2: I will admit that I have at various points in the past just like it, it is obvious that you still need a human being back there. Yes. But I will admit that like in my mind's eye, I saw like I saw like a Jetsons robot.
1: <laughs> That's <laughs> not cute. what it's
2: going to be at all, Ben.
1: No, it would be cute though if there were like a. You could a, put
2: a little animal on top of it. You could be like, "Here is our our yeah. cat."
1: Our sure. baseball
2: cat on our baseball Roomba. Now, now we're <laughs> cooking with gas.
1: <laughs> All right. And there was also a new slate of Hall of Fame candidates announced in the Veterans Committee. It's not actually called the Veterans Committee anymore. The modern baseball era ballot. Yes. Ten candidates, about nine of whom are probably more deserving than Harold Baines. So we will see how many yeah. of them get in, I, I think. Ted Simmons and Lou Whitaker, and certainly Marvin Miller have strong cases, but that's probably something we can revisit and potentially talk to Jay Jaffe about. Oh, yes. At some point down the road. It was also announced that there's a pilot in the works. Amazon is adapting A League of Their Own as a half-hour comedy. It's set to star Darcy Carden from The Good Place and Abby Jacobson from Broad City. It's still in development. This is kind of a long way away probably, but exciting news. Always good to have baseball on TV. If we can't have pitch, maybe we can have A League of Their Own, and hopefully it will last longer than the 1993 CBS sitcom version of A League of Their Own, which was cancelled after I think three episodes. So fingers crossed And if that gets closer to becoming a reality, I'm sure we will discuss it. If you missed it, you can hear me talk to Katie Baker about the movie last December on episode 1312. And then the last bit of news, there was uh, another little flare-up in the ongoing collusion discussion and (sighs) frozen free agent market discussion. So... Alex Anthopoulos, Braves GM, made a comment. This was the part of the quote that was repeated everywhere, though it was a longer statement at the time. He said on a conference call with reporters, every day you get more information and we've had time to connect with 27 of the clubs. Obviously, the Astros and Nationals being in the World Series, they were tied up. But we had a chance to get a sense of what the other clubs are going to look to do in free agency who might be available in trades. And obviously this set off some alarm bells and the Players Association, (laughs) its ears perked up and Tony Clark released a statement. He said the statements made by Braves GM Alex Anthopoulos call into question the integrity of the entire free agent system. The clear description of club coordination is egregious and we have launched an immediate investigation looking into the matter. Then Anthopolis released another statement to try to clarify what he had said, and he said, oops, no collusion, didn't mean it. Yeah, did a little (laughs) whoopsie. Yeah. (laughs) In advance of the general manager's meetings, I called around to clubs to explore the possibility of potential off-season trades. At no time during any of these calls was there discussion of individual free agents or the Braves' intentions with respect to the free agent market. To the extent I indicated otherwise during my media availability on Monday, I misspoke and apologize for any confusion (laughs) or any collusion for that matter. (laughs) So... This is obviously something that made everyone pay attention because there is a rule. The CBA says that players shall not act in concert with other players and clubs shall not act in concert with other clubs. And, of course, that raises the question of well, what is acting in concert exactly? How do we define right. inclusion? We are all very familiar with that debate from other arenas these days. And given what's going on with the free agent market and the fact that teams are not spending as much on free agents and also the history of teams colluding and mm-hmm. being found guilty of collusion and having to pay large sums to players in the late 80s. This is something that is on everyone's mind, was kind of a conspiracy theory that was going on, and then Anthopolis seemed to tread into territory that indicated that teams might be doing this. It's Kind of hard to say what exactly he was doing and what he meant, but obviously it made sense for the Players Association to say, hold on, what is going on here?
2: Yeah, I think that I could believe. I don't think it's implausible to think that he didn't mean to kind of give the show away (laughs) and indicate collusion. I think it's perfectly possible that he was talking about sort of the usual business that clubs do in the offseason, but I don't know... How do I want to say this because I don't want to accuse people. I don't think that that is dispositive one way or the other on the question of collusion, right? Those no. things are largely unrelated to one another. I don't think that we can say, oh, well, he did a whoopsie and that means no collusion anymore than we can say that this proves definitively that collusion is happening. Mm-hmm. I do think that it indicates a new and appropriate posture and tone from the players association, which is yes. that. They are going into a period where, you know, the union and the league are always in an antagonistic relationship with one another by definition. Mm -hmm. That level of antagonism gets dialed up or down depending on the situation. Obviously, when you're going into a new CBA negotiation, that's a moment where you are going to be the most antagonistic toward one another because you're advocating for very different things, even if you have some goals in common about the direction of the game or what have you. So we should... Be prepared that this is going to be the public posture of the players association and I think it's an appropriate one because mm-hmm. however much blame you want to sort of proactive blame you want to lay at the feet of ownership for the f- current situation we find ourselves in and. I think I've said before, I tend to be of the mind that like they should get credit and blame for getting what they wanted in the last CBA negotiation in much the same way that the union should have perhaps anticipated some things better and gone a different way with what it wanted. Mm-hmm. But this is this is their job. Their job is to advocate on behalf of their members and take a skeptical um, look at what ownership and team officials are saying. And uh we should all, we should all prepare ourselves for this yeah. to be the, the tone of the conversation going forward. Cause I think it's. It would be an abdication of their responsibility to not approach things very skeptically and to be prepared to be adversarial where necessary. So
1: Yep. Yeah. Teams did this before, so they yep. kinda of brought it on themselves that there's gonna be suspicion arising yeah. whenever you get something happening in the free agent market like we've seen in the last few years. And granted that was decades ago and Alex Anthopoulos was ten years old at the time and <laughs> was mostly a different group of owners except sure. for, I guess, Jerry Reinsdorf, but owners have similar motivations today as they did in the 80s. So yeah. it's, it's not out of the question that this could happen, although I would guess that they'd be smarter about it than they were last time and that it would be difficult to prove and that there wouldn't be a literal information bank and <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have – records of of people calling each other and consulting. It would be hard to hide, I think, given how easy it is to find receipts for everything that happens these days. But yeah, it makes sense to be vigilant. And this may have been an innocent comment that ran afoul of what we're all thinking of already. But we were thinking that for a reason. There's a reason to even have it on your radar to some extent so this will probably not improve relations and not lessen the suspicion on both sides so we will see what comes of it
2: yeah i think it will be a consistent theme and approach throughout this whole process and yeah you're right to say there's there's reason to believe even with a change in ownership that the incentives are largely the same the only thing that's really changed is the magnitude of them right now yeah. we're dealing with even more money at stake uh, than than they were in the 80s and 90s so mm-hmm. uh, if anything the incentives have gotten worse
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> Well, we've already been talking for as long as the Asheville Taurus and the Winston-Salem Twins played on that afternoon in 1916. But let us take a quick break and we will call Eddie Robinson. Well, we are joined now by Eddie Robinson, who has led an amazing life in baseball, and we're thrilled to get to talk to him today. Eddie, hello, and how are you? I'm fine, thank you. So I, I guess we'll go back to the beginning. There's so much ground to cover, but I'm very curious about your upbringing Growing up in Texas and during the Great Depression, and I know you were raised by a, a single mother, and, and so I'm sure life was not easy at the time. So I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, what it was like for you and, and how you found time for baseball in those days.
3: Well, <laughs> I thought I had some ability in high grammar school when I could hit better than anyone and uh, hit it further, hit the softball we played. Mm-hmm. And then I got to high school, and uh, they didn't have high school baseball in the Depression era. Uh, they couldn't afford it. And the only baseball we played was uh, sandlot ball, uh, which we played on Sundays. And uh, I had a neighbor, Charlie Osborne, who had a son who was a second baseman, and he wanted his son to play. So he formed a kids team made up of uh, uh young young guys in the area who liked to play we played every sunday and uh i graduated from that to the parish semi pro team that had older players and uh I, I was playing for them my junior and senior year in high school and uh a scout came to town one day and saw one of our games he came to scout one of our pitchers really but he liked me and he tried he wanted to sign me so uh, I, I didn't want to sign and I wanted to play my last year of eligibility in football in high school so when I got out of high school he came around and I signed uh, I signed with Knoxville Tennessee In those days uh, there weren't farm systems like there are today mm-hmm. development leagues minor leagues, they were independent. Each each club was independent. And they had signed their own players and developed them, and then they made money by selling them to higher classification clubs. So I signed with Knoxville, and uh, they they sent me to uh, Valdosta, Georgia, which was, they owned my, they had a working agreement Baldasta, Valdosta. was an independent team. And they signed some of their players, and, and and Knoxville sent some players to them. And that's how it all got started. I I got a $300 bonus to sign and a $150 a month contract. Uh-huh. And reported to Valdosta, had a mediocre year. And uh, the next year, I got a contract for $100 a month. <laughs> I got a big cut. But I was happy to still be playing. I I just barely made it. But the second year, I had a great year. Uh, Baltimore had acquired my contract from Knoxville, and Baltimore took me to spring training. I almost made the Baltimore team. But right the last few days, they they got a player named Al Flair from Boston, the first baseman. And they sent me to Elmira, New York, which was... uh, high-classification team. Uh, In those days, there was Major League Double A was the highest minor league rating, and then A, uh, Elmira in New York, was an A-classification club. I had a good year in Elmira, and the next year I uh, I made the Baltimore team, had a good year in Baltimore, and was sold to the big leagues. That's how my
0: Mm
3: -hmm. minor league career went. Mm Mm-hmm. And was it a hard upbringing at that
1: time? What did your mother do, and and how did you make ends meet?
3: Well, uh, it was hard. Uh, people who, uh, I, not many people today ever experienced going through a, a depression, but depression was very difficult times. Like when I was in high school, I worked for my uncle who had a motor freight line, and he ran trucks from Dallas. Paris was the hub, and he ran trucks to Texarkana, Texas, Dallas, Texas, and uh, some towns in Oklahoma. And I worked for him uh, all through high school. I went to work every morning at five o'clock, got off at eight to go to school, and uh, after school, of course, practice football and basketball, etc. But uh, and he paid me six dollars a week. And uh, $6 was very, my mother had a job too. My father and mother were divorced. And between what she made and my $6 kept us going through my uh, through my high school days. And uh, it was just, uh, <laughs> it was very difficult times. My grandmother at one time borrowed $5. From the bootlegger so they could have christmas dinner and uh, things like that went on you scrape by and when i got the 300 hundred dollar bonus i bought my mother a, a washing machine huh. and uh, <laughs> that was a big big present for her and then i went to baldass and made 300 dollars a month and came home uh, after the season my uncle gave me a A big raise, he raised me at $12 a week. And I had the same job. But uh, that's the way things were. Uh, It's hard to describe, but uh, I picked cotton when I was, before I got to high school, I picked cotton for half a cent a pound. And uh, (laughs) that's not much, that's not much wage. But uh, you, you did anything to make a buck. And that, Baseball saved me. I had a chance to go to the University of Texas on a scholarship, a baseball scholarship. And uh, then I had to make the decision whether to play pro ball and take the bonus or go to University of Texas. And I, I figured if I'm any good, I thought I was a good ball player. I thought if I'm any good, in four years I ought to be in the big leagues and uh, in four years, I'd be graduating from college, and I thought the way times were the way we needed the money, I thought I should turn professional, which I did for me. it worked out great in four years, I was in a big league, yeah uh the way I'd planned, but for a lot of young players who don't make it it's it's a bad deal you spend they 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 sign a minor league contract. They go to minor league town and play, and they meet a girl, and they get married, and uh, they never they never get a chance to go to school, and they're stuck with some job that they could be more qualified for, but they just don't have the college or the education for it. Yeah. So th- that's kind of the way things were. I don't know if I've been very descriptive, but I've tried to be.
2: Now, you, you've painted quite a picture. Like many people in your generation and many pro ball players in your generation, your pro career was disrupted by uh, military service. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, the time you spent in the Navy and also how, how it was adjusting back to civilian life and also baseball when you came back.
3: Well, the end of the season in uh, 1942, I was sold to the Cleveland Indians. Baltimore being an independent team, and they had an agreement with Cleveland. Cleveland sent them their players for development, and for that, Cleveland had the right to buy any two players that Baltimore owned for $10,000 each. And I was one of the two players that they bought. And I went to Cleveland after the minor league season was over, and I got into four or five games. Before the season ended in in the major leagues. And then I was immediately, uh, I immediately had to go into the service and I enlisted in the Navy and I got into a program called the Tooney Program. Gene Tooney, the world's heavyweight champion, had a program that they trained uh, athletes to set up programs for the servicemen, intramural baseball basketball it was a valuable program and it gave the the troops a chance to to get away from their everyday military duties and i got in i went in the navy as a chief uh specialist uh, athletic specialist and uh i was uh, in norfolk virginia for a while for two years and then i went to hawaii and it was going on down as a uh, as uh, our armed forces would would uh, retake islands in the south pacific then we would go in and set up programs for the players on those islands that had been uh, retaken and uh i they i had a bone tumor on my leg and and they operated on it in hawaii and uh they got paralyzed my leg and i was I didn't go down to the island like the rest of the guys. They sent me back because I had a paralyzed leg. I had what was called foot drop. And foot drop, you can't pick your toe up. you Your your foot sort of hangs. You have to wear a brace. And uh I didn't think I'd ever play baseball again. But a doctor, I finally got to Bethesda, Maryland, and they had a couple of neurosurgeons there. Uh, neurosurgery was in its infancy, but these guys were, these doctors were very good. And, uh, Dr. Pudens operated on my leg, on the nerve in my leg, which the doctor in Hawaii had injured. He cut an inch of the nerve out and sutured, the. Uh, a nerve is like a inner tube and the fibers grow down the center. And he had to delicately sew. The inner tube back together in my, the nerve in my leg. And then the nerves started to grow back. And by the, by the spring of 1946, I was able to throw the brace I was wearing away and start playing baseball again, which was a God given thing. I thought, uh, that's the only reason I thought I was able to play. They sent me to Baltimore and international back to Baltimore. And I had a tremendous year. Bobby Brown, the ex former president of the American League, was was playing at that time. He's a doctor uh, now here in Fort Worth, where I live. He was in Newark, and Jackie Robinson. He was in Montreal. So the three of us uh, we were three of the top players in the league. The next year, they he went. Robinson went to Brooklyn. Brown went to the Yankees, and I went to Cleveland.
1: I was going to ask you about that year, because you were the MVP of the International League that year, and I think Jackie was uh, close behind you. So what was it like to to have him in that league at that time?
3: Well, him being black, I think it mattered to some people. It didn't matter to me. He was a good player, and uh, you could tell he was going to be a big leaguer. And Bobby Brown was the same. He Bobby was a big bonus boy. He went to Tulane and he was gonna be a doctor, but they gave the Yankees gave him a fifty thousand dollar bonus. And um uh, he was a fine player at Newark. Then Jackie had problems in the major league, I guess, with people who didn't want to expect blacks and to respect them in the in the league, but he he took it like a man and deserved a lot of credit. However, in 1947, Cleveland signed Larry Doby, mm-hmm. and he was the first black player in the American League, and he went through all the same troubles uh, that, that Robinson went through, but you hear little of, of Larry Doby. All you hear about is Robinson, and that's a shame because Doby was a good guy, a good player. He's in the Hall of Fame today, uh, along with Robinson. And uh, I've always thought that that was uh, he wasn't getting a fair shake.
1: Mm-hmm. And during the war, I, I wanted to ask you. I, I know that you were on a, a team that played exhibition games to entertain players with many other great players who were also in the service. So, did you feel fortunate to to be able to do that during your time in the service?
3: Yeah, uh, I did. I didn't. I didn't see anything wrong with it. We were doing our job. But... We had other jobs other than playing baseball. I, I had a job instructing uh, people. Norfolk was a, uh, what do they call them? Uh, that a ship that accompanied convoys across the ocean. It was a little bit smaller than, uh, than a, a destroyer. And uh, it was called a destroyer escort. And uh, it escorted troops. And we would instruct the officers of those ships on uh, submarine warfare using the Doppler system, which they would send out signals. And if they hit anything, it's involved. The the signal would come back, and then uh, we could tell if it was a submarine. And if so, the ship would drop uh, depth charges and try to sink the submarine. Mm -hmm. And so that was a valuable job. It wasn't like we did nothing but play baseball yeah we all had valuable jobs that we did while we were in the navy
2: absolutely and and after you recovered from the bad surgery that you had and were coming back into civilian and baseball life what was it what was the experience like transitioning back to baseball full-time after the war concluded how did that go for you
3: well uh, it went went okay i I played, as I say, the first year back from the Navy, I played in Baltimore with the Orioles and I had a tremendous year. And then I went to Cleveland the next year. I didn't do too well, but I, I hit 250. I knew I was capable, capable of doing much more than that. And, uh, I played two years for Cleveland and we won the World Series in 1948. There were six Hall of Famers on that team that I played on in 48. Then I was traded to Washington, and in Washington, I I kind of found myself as a hitter, and I made the all-star team that year, and uh, I was on four all-star teams totally, and uh, I, I became a good hitter, and it took me a while to get adjusted to the big
1: leagues. And we could probably spend the whole time asking you, what about this guy? What was it like to, to play with this guy or against that guy? But one person I am curious about on that 1948 championship team, you played with Satchel Page. So what was it like to share a clubhouse and a field with him?
3: It was fun playing with Satchel. He was he was a funny guy, and he had a lot of funny sayings that he used to make, and he was a good teammate, and he really helped us. He helped us win the pennant, and he helped us win the World Series.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: But uh, one of his famous sayings was, don't don't, ever look back.
0: Right.
3: So, uh, somebody might be gaining on you.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, things like that. He, he was fun to have around. He and Dobie were the two black players on the team. hmm
1: And then you later were traded to the Yankees, and you were in your 30s by that time, but those were also great teams, and and you were still a a very good player at the time but because those teams were so great you kind of played a part-time role and there was one year when you hit 16 home runs in only 173 at bats that was 55 when you got to go to the world series again but Mm -hmm. was it difficult to be in a a part-time role did you wish that you were somewhere where you could play every day or were you just happy to be on those great teams with mantle and ford and barra and all the rest well, it, it, yeah,
3: I, I knew I was winding down, mm-hmm. but it was fun to be with the Yankees. I thought I was going to be the regular first baseman when I went there. But uh, a player named Bill Skyron came along, mm-hmm. a young player, and he had a great spring, made the team, and, uh, and it was understandable. He was our first baseman of the future. So he became the regular first baseman. Uh, we had... Joe Collins was an outfielder, first baseman, and me. And, uh, for that season with the Yankees, I think per, uh, our first base production was like, uh, 130 runs batted in and 45 home runs. And we had a first base had a great season. Yeah. And Cleveland, but we, uh, we lost, uh, Cleveland beat us. And, uh, we won 103 games and, and Cleveland beat us by eight games.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, 103 games is the most games the Casey Stingle team ever won. Yeah, And uh, then Cleveland turned around and lost four games in a row to the Giants in that series. That's the year that Mays made the brilliant catch-off, big works
0: mm-hmm.
3: in the outfield. And then the next year, I had a good year. I uh, hit a lot of home runs. I I hit the most home runs with the fewest amounts of bat. That record stood for a long time. Yeah,
2: I'm gonna have that. To... About
3: sums it up.
2: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sums up the the playing career part. Um, but you obviously went on to continue to have a long uh, career in the game. And after you were done playing, transition. Yeah, I,
3: I did. I I <laughs> wanted to be in the front office of baseball. I wanted to. I wanted to have a career in baseball. I I got released. Cleveland released me and I called Paul Richards, who was the manager of, he had been my manager in Chicago. We had a close relationship. And he was the general manager, manager of the Baltimore Orioles. And I called him and he gave me a job, uh, working in the player development department. And I, I did that for two years and then he took the job as, uh, First vice president, general manager of the Houston Astros, and they were—we chose the first Astros team. And I, I Paul asked me to go with him to Houston, and I did. I owned a restaurant at the time in Baltimore, and uh, Brooks Robinson bought half interest in it, and he ran it for two or three years after I left, and uh, then he sold it, but. I went to Houston, and we we chose the very first Houston team. We played in a little stadium while they built the dome called Colt Stadium, C-O-L-T. And we watched the dome being built. And uh, then Richards got fired, and I resigned. And I went with Kansas City, and Eddie Lopat, who had been my teammate with the Yankees, was general manager there. I went there as his assistant. And uh, then Richards went to Atlanta. He got the job as general manager in Atlanta. And I, Finley was moving the Kansas City team to Oakland. And Richards asked me to come to Atlanta, which I did. And I was there for 10 years. We had Hank Aaron on the team and Eddie Matthews came. I got. Then Richards left Atlanta and I became the general manager. And uh, I hired Eddie Matthews as the manager. And uh, I enjoyed my 10 years in Atlanta. It was great. Ted Turner bought the team. You know who Ted Turner is, of course. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, (laughs) Turner Broadcasting. And I worked with him. And then I got a chance to come back to Texas. Uh, Brad Corbett had bought the Texas Rangers, and he wanted me to come here and be the general manager. I was happy in Atlanta, but I thought uh, the chance to come back to Texas being a Texas born and bred guy I just thought that I couldn't turn that down so I came back here and uh, I worked with uh, Brad for three years and then he sold the team to Eddie Childs Eddie and I didn't get along and he let me go in 1982 and I became a I worked for several clubs as a consultant uh, from 82 on and finally just retired
2: yeah, I'm. curious. Given all the different roles that you've had in the game, from being a player to a scout to a player development person, a general manager, a consultant, which of those roles you found the most rewarding? I imagine they all had you know their their peaks and valleys. But
3: I'm curious uh, which one. That's a good question. I think the re- most rewarding role in in the progression through baseball would be player development. I think being the farm director and in charge of all the minor league players and scouts and signing the player depending on you're having good scouts, signing the player, develop developing the player and seeing him make the big leagues was that was the most enjoyable thing. The only thing that that's what I enjoyed the most in baseball was that. Other than playing, playing was tops. But when you can't play anymore when you can help players get to the big leagues, that's a big thing, and that's what I enjoy. But you didn't make much money at that, and of course, you if you were in the front office, you wanted to be the general manager, and I was able to do that. And uh, of course, you make a lot more money, and but then you kind of isolate yourself. You're the big dog, and everybody kind of looks up and stand off from you. You know they. You're you you're in charge of hiring and firing all the baseball people, and they don't they they don't know quite how to take that, and as a result, you you become kind of out there by yourself, and that's and that's what I didn't like about being a general manager was the fact that you didn't have the closeness that you once had. With the coaches and the players and everybody, that mm. was a that was a different deal.
1: Yeah, and when you were a, a player development, a, a farm director, I think you were a pioneer in some respects. And maybe this was the influence of Paul Richards, but I thought I read, didn't you do some things with tracking pitch counts and exercise regimens?
3: No, I didn't. I, the only thing I did that was out of the ordinary, I guess, was I did I did believe in uh, base on balls I I thought players who got a lot of baseball balls were more valuable than they received credit for. And Craig Wright, he, he kept writing me. He wanted to work for me, and yeah. he felt that there was a room for statistics in the game. Mm-hmm. And he finally convinced me, and I hired him, and he came here to Texas. And he was a help. But we, it was in its infancy. The statisticians were, they, he was the first one and it must have been a ten-year gap, maybe a twenty-year gap before anybody else started hiring them.
0: Yeah, I,
3: I guess they saw the value of it. And uh, but Craig was a pioneer; he was the first one. And as I said, he was helpful to me. Mm-hmm. And when I left the Rangers, he he stayed for a while. And then I think he worked for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And yes, I didn't. I don't know about his what he did after he worked for the dodgers but i think he was quite successful yeah and i think that was kind of the inroad of today's statistical right baseball and uh, i think statistics has a place in a game i think there's th- that there are certain statistics that are helpful but you know you can go a long way with statistics and you can get mired down in it and and I, I think uh, they might be carrying, carrying it too far.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: That's my observation.
1: Yeah. Well, Craig was a pioneer, but it, it took someone like you to to open the door, you know, as a traditional well, baseball true. man to, to say.
3: I take yeah. credit for that.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
3: Nobody wants to hear it, but <laughs> those who will listen, I'll tell them about it.
1: Yeah. Well, you also you either played or, or worked for some of the, the biggest characters ever in the game. I, I think, you know, going back to Bill Veck and then Ted Turner you mentioned, you worked for Charlie Finley in Kansas City and then George Steinbrenner in New York. So you, you worked for all kinds of different larger than life personalities. I and did. How did you how'd you get and, along uh, with all of them?
3: You didn't name the most important one uh, that I was associated with. That was Paul Richards. Yeah, he was the best. He was the best baseball man I've ever known, and he had great ideas. He was just uh, ahead of the game, and uh, I had the privilege of being his assistant. I played for him two years in Chicago when he was a manager, and uh, that carried on. and I worked for him for for years as his assistant and farm director in Houston, and. And I, I enjoyed working for him more than anybody. Uh, Ted Turner bought the Braves while I was there. And he was, Ted's was a good guy. He was a sportsman. He won the America's Cup. and uh, But then I got a chance to come here with Corbett, Brad Corbett. And he was a wonderful guy. Great guy to work for. Loved to have a good time. Wanted to make the Rangers a winning team.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And um, I worked for Charlie Finley. Charlie was a knowledgeable baseball person. He he was a smart guy, and he was ahead of the game too. He wanted to promote like Bill Beck did. Yeah. And the owners were the owners were so stodgy and set in their ways. They didn't want anything new. Yeah. And uh, Marvin Miller came into the game while I was mm-hmm. general manager, and Marvin did more for the player. Than anybody. I mean, he he should be in the Hall of Fame. I don't know why they don't yes. put him in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, but he's uh, he was a he, he, Marvin and I got along fine. He was a he was a good guy. Well, before
1: Marvin, weren't you involved even earlier in the Players Association or at the very beginning?
3: Well, yeah, I was. I I, I was involved in it, and we were trying to get a pension. Mm-hmm. And uh, the owners didn't... We wanted part of the World Series money and, and the television was coming in and we wanted some kind of a pension. And they finally gave us a token pension. And every club had player representatives and I was a representative. in the, the very first representative from I was with Philadelphia and I was Philadelphia's representative. And there were... 16 of us there were only 16 big league teams and uh yeah we did a lot i i was very active in getting pensions for the players Mm -hmm. uh not not from the very beginning but from the player representative at time from then on i uh i was instrumental not instrumental in it but heavily involved early win He's in the big leagues. He was a big league pitcher.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Early when really fought for a better pension. You never hear early's name mentioned, but he he was most uh, he he did more to get it off the ground than anybody out of that thing. Mm-hmm. With the Players Association
1: I was going to mention Early Wynn Who of course is a Hall of Famer And he's the pitcher that you faced More than any other pitcher And uh, he he did
3: pretty I was traded uh, for him I was, oh, When yeah. I was traded from Cleveland uh, he was.
1: He came to Cleveland from Washington.
3: Yeah, and he... Uh, we went back a long way.
1: He was pretty good against you. You had a hard time hitting him. <laughs> so I guess you, well, you weren't the only one.
3: He was a tough pitcher. I wasn't the only one who had a hard time hitting him. <laughs> yeah,
1: uh, and I know that Ted Williams said that you were the most underrated and best clutch hitter he ever played against, which is true if you look back at the numbers you were very good with runners in scoring position those clutch situations and I wanted to ask because you played against Williams and DiMaggio and Mantle and played with many of them also uh, you know if there are any players that you might want to mention either your favorite teammates or or the toughest guys you played against because you know there there aren't a lot of people who have that experience that you have of of playing against players from that time
3: yeah, I, well, I, I've i had a lot of roommates, of course. Mm-hmm. And, and when I played, you always had a roommate. You didn't have individual rooms. And uh, I enjoyed Joe Gordon. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was my roommate in Cleveland. He's in the Hall of Fame. He had been most valuable player with the Yankees. And Joe and I got to be very good friends, and I admired him a lot, and he helped me quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Ted, I got to know Ted well, and I got to know Joe DiMaggio well. I, I admired them both. I thought DiMaggio was the best player I ever played against, all-around player, and I thought Williams was the best hitter. And I thought Allie Reynolds, who is not in the Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. was the best pitcher. He should be in the Hall of Fame. I thought he was excellent pitcher.
0: Uh-huh.
3: And... Um, yeah, I, I, uh, Yogi and I were good friends when I was with the Yankees. Uh, Yogi and I were, I guess he was my closest friend on the Yankees. And uh, I enjoyed all the guys. They were all good guys. Uh, to be a big leaguer in those days, you had to have some stuff in you. I don't know how to explain it, but they were kind of special guys, big leaguers were. Um, and uh, we we had dress codes and we we did things uh, a lot differently than today. Yeah,
1: and is it true that you gave Babe Ruth the bat that he was leaning on on Babe Ruth Day in yes, 48? Yes, I did. Uh,
3: <laughs> they were retiring his number, and uh, not retiring his number. They were honoring him. They were retiring his number.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, the Yankees at one time had their clubhouse on the third base side. And then they moved over on the first base side with their clubhouse, but they didn't move the lockers, and Babe's locker was in the uh, visiting clubhouse. Closed, had his name on top. And when he came here that day, he wanted to use his old locker, so he, he came out and got dressed in his old locker and came out on the visiting bench, the Cleveland bench. And he had his doctor with him. He was a very sick man. He was, yes. He had throat cancer, and he... He didn't talk all that much nor that well. And uh, when he went up, started to go up the home plate to re- have his number retired, I could see that he was shaky. And I'd, I just reached in the bat rack and picked out a bat and handed it to him. And he went up for the ceremony. And that famous picture, I think it's a Pulitzer Prize winning picture mm. of him holding the bat. That's the bat. And when he came back, I got him to autograph it and I kept that bat for a long time. <laughs> what did you do with it? You don't still have it? Uh, no, I sold it to Barry Halper, who uh, uh-huh. was a minor owner of the Yanks. He had a few shares, I guess. And he was a Ruth collector and he always told me if you ever want to get rid of that bat, I'll be, I want it. <laughs> so, uh, Memorabilia at that time was nothing. I mean, you. you <laughs> You had a lot of memorabilia, I guess, but you didn't know what it was worth. I had no idea what the bat was worth. I told my wife one day, I said, I think I'll call Barry and, and I'll ask him a price. I know he won't pay, but whatever he offers me, that'll give me an idea about what it's worth. I really didn't want to sell it, yeah. but I just wanted some idea of what it was worth. Mm-hmm. I called Barry and I, I said, I'm thinking about selling that bat. He said, how much you want for it? I said, Ten thousand dollars, he said. I'll have the money to you tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was gone. Yeah, he probably would have paid
1: more. I would guess. <laughs> yeah. Oh hell,
3: you know, he <laughs> could get two hundred thousand dollars for it <laughs> yeah, today. Yeah, sure. It's in the museum in Cleveland. It's in, at the ballpark
1: in the museum there. Uh huh. So you've you've seen it all. You've you've done most of it. I know that you know you still get chances to come out to the park sometimes. And you went to the World Series in in 2016 when Cleveland was in it again. And do you still follow the game very closely? And and even though it's changed quite a bit, yeah. Do you my still wife enjoy and
3: I are good, real terrific fans. Yeah, uh, we follow the Texas Rangers.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, when you get out of baseball after having been in it for so long, you become a a hell of a second guesser, <laughs> <laughs> and we sit at home watching him play and second guess the manager.
0: Uh huh.
3: It's fun. We enjoy it. We 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 were very sad to see the season end. Yeah. I hope we make it through another season. It's a baseball is fun, but I I, I have one pet peeve, and that's the the shift i uh, think the shift is unfair uh, i think it's ugly <laughs> i don't think it has any place in baseball uh uh
1: uh-huh. well i was going to ask you because the game has changed in a lot of ways but not so a much a lot that... of ways it's yeah.
3: completely changed the game isn't anything like it was when yeah. when i played but you
1: still love it it sounds like so it hasn't yeah it still takes 3 outs to get the
3: team out and <laughs> <laughs> and they 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 got they keep averages today that you'd never think of in the past. Yes, <laughs> but you know we won pennants. We had wonderful players. They were heroes, and we did all we did all the things they do today. But today they just do it a different way. Mm-hmm. I think that's the way baseball is. I don't think it'll ever go back mm-hmm. to the way it was. It's I don't know where baseball is headed. Well, it's it's
1: still here. It's been here before you Yeah, and... <laughs> it's it's our national pastime. Yeah. Yeah. And and when you read or you hear that you're, you know, the last living player from that 48 team or or the last the the oldest living player from various franchises, how does that make you feel? Do you feel proud or, or... Makes me
3: feel damn good.
1: <laughs> yeah, to be here still, <laughs> I guess. I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. But
3: uh, I have so many memories and and I'm I'm writing a I wrote I I, I wrote a book. Yes. Uh, Lucky me is the name of it. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a very good book. The people that read it uh, tell me how much they enjoyed it, and we've sold a lot of copies. It's a popular book.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I'm writing another book at the present time. The history of baseball is seen through the eyes, seen through my eyes as a player. Ah. How I view and viewed the changes that have come about in baseball over the years up to the present day. Uh-huh. And uh, I get such a kick out of that because it allows me to relive my life and my experiences and all my friends and players that I played with and enjoyed being with and things that happen, funny things that Yeah, You know, every year there's some extremely funny things that go on that, fans don't ever know about you don't know those things going yeah i don't know if they do today or not but just being yogi's teammate for two years mm. was just wonderful that was so funny <laughs> things he would say and do Yeah. <laughs> and uh others others funny things that were at the time <laughs> you didn't think they were very funny but when you look back
1: at it they were funny yeah and your your memories just from talking to you, it, it sounds like they're very sharp, and I'm sure that you have been asked these questions many times, and you're used to to telling people about all these things. But it it must be nice just to be able to replay all these players that you saw in your mind. You know, whether it's uh, yeah. Bob Feller or you know all the the legends that you played with or against, uh, just to be able to have that yeah, in your mind's eye. That's right. Yeah.
3: that's why I think this this book will be extra special. For those who read it, and uh, if they don't read it, it'll be special for my family. Yeah. But you—you've had a pretty good thumbnail sketch here. You did your homework <laughs> yes. when you researched me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the only thing I know is you know Craig right? <laughs> yes. Craig's a, a decent guy, good guy. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the reason I'm doing it for you. Well, thank you. What
1: do you do? What? Where, where does this go? Well, I'm a—I'm a writer and. Uh, my stuff is mostly on the internet, although I've written a couple books too. I've been hosting this program. It's called Effectively Wild. It's for a, a company called FanGraphs, which is one of the newer sort of statistical sabermetric sort of sites. Oh God, are you a sabermetric <laughs> guy? <laughs> well, not as much as Craig. I, I'm not as as good at, at it as he is, but I'm I'm interested in in that side of things.
3: Well, you tell me. Where do you think baseball is going with this? Well, uh, every front office, every front office. In Baseball, yes. They don't want baseball people. They 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 want statisticians. It's true. Well, you started and, it. Uh, <laughs>
1: you hired Craig. And it uh, it started yeah, everything. I,
3: I made a mistake there, I guess, <laughs> because uh, nowadays they're getting rid of all the scouts, the guys that go out and find the players. Yes, mm-hmm. and and they're they're divesting themselves of. A lot of damn valuable information That's true So I don't know where they're going with it
1: Yeah it's It's true that some teams are are Cutting back on on their pro scouts at least Although you know these days There's so much technology That replicates at least Some of what a scout could
3: do You know Uh, Yeah they can do all But they can't look at a player and see Things in him that that You can't get with statistics Mm -hmm. And And those players, good hitters are born. They, you can't make a good hitter. And statistics, you can't tell him you got to swing up at the ball. You got, you got to do all these things to be a good hitter. That has to be in born into a guy, and he comes and he has that ability, and it'll come out. And uh, he'll learn how to play his position by talking to other players. And I think statistics has a place in the game. I. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of good has come from, I think, starting with base on balls. Yes. That now has become a big thing. That was my first thing Mm -hmm. that I thought about. But I, I just... It Seems to me like they're taking it too
1: far. Well, it it has changed things a lot, and I, I think there's a lot of good things, and I like following the game that way. But it has changed some things to the extent that now you know the game is unrecognizable in a lot of ways. Whereas uh, in your career, you walked much more often than you struck out, which is unusual today. Of course, you get so many strikeouts because you know it it's valuable for a pitcher to be able to to get the out himself. Yeah. Yeah,
3: uh, you know the, <laughs> they build the ballparks today. That home runs are easy to hit, and the ball is different. And, and <laughs> I don't know whether better. the ball's been <laughs> I don't know whether the ball's been tinkered with or not. Yes. But you guys hit home runs today that you you just can't figure it. <laughs> their tail flies out and they stick their bat out and it goes over the fence. <laughs> yes, that's true. And they, and they break their bat and it goes over the fence. <laughs> yes, it's nice to talk to someone who's involved in it i didn't know you were a statistical person
1: yes i, I am but, to some extent
3: uh, well baseball has gone on for a 100 years been the national pastime and i don't know how they're going to improve on it a hell of a lot <laughs> they're just going to do it another way mm-hmm. and uh <laughs> well i just don't know what's going to happen <laughs> well as long as it keeps going
1: and and you keep going too <laughs> so let's hope uh it well, I hope
3: I keep going to finish my book.
1: Yes, I hope so too. And uh, <laughs> I will tell people where to find the one that's out already. Lucky me, my 65 years in baseball. If there's anything we didn't cover today, it's all in there. So
3: I don't um, think you missed much. You <laughs> did your homework. If that's what statistical people do, well, then you did all right. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, it's been a. And your partner. Yes. She had
3: a couple of good questions. Yes.
1: Well, it's been a, a pleasure and an honor to talk to you, and I appreciate the time because you've. Had a a fascinating career in life, and you've seen so many things. And I I like the stats, but I also like the history. And you've seen as much of it as as anyone else has.
3: Well, uh, I'm, I'm glad you liked it, mm-hmm. and uh, whatever you do with it, I think I hope it'll be positive. All right. Well, thank you very and, much, Eddie. And, uh, okay.
1: All right. Good talking to you. Bye. Alright, well thanks again to Eddie We really appreciate his time Meg had an appointment and had to drop off Before the end of the interview Which is why she went quiet, she didn't want to interrupt Eddie I could do a whole podcast where we just Talk to players from earlier eras Like Glory of Their Times, the podcast These guys just have so many memories And so many great stories to tell And I would encourage you to check out Eddie's autobiography The first one, that is, the one that's already out I asked him during the interview About pitch counts and exercise equipment And he said that he hadn't pioneered those things, but he does write in the book about how he hired a nutritionist and a full-time fitness instructor when he was with the Rangers, which was obviously unusual at that time. And he also writes about how in 1967, the year that he was with the A's, he had ordered the manager of their double-A club to keep this highly touted 19-year-old pitcher, George Lazarique, under 100 pitches. And during the year, Lazarique had a no-hitter going into the eighth inning, but had already thrown 110 pitches. So the manager followed Eddie's orders and and took him out of the game, which cost him the chance at the no-hitter, which obviously happens today, but was more unusual then, although Lazarique did hurt his arm later on anyway and didn't have a long major league career. He actually made some news when that book came out a few years ago because he told a story in there about the 1948 Cleveland team stealing signs. I'm reading from his autobiography now, just a little excerpt about that. We continued to scuffle and after the Labor Day doubleheaders on September 6th, we're in third place, four and a half games behind the Red Sox and three behind The Yankees. One of our hitters thought it was time for desperate measures and suggested we try to get visiting catchers signs. We picked a spot in the Municipal Stadium scoreboard in center field and placed one of our pitchers out there with a telescope sitting on a tripod. Our pitcher would let us know when he had the opposing catcher signals. We had one of the grounds crew dressed in a white uniform sit in the bleachers alongside the scoreboard. For the hitters who wanted the signals, he'd hold his legs together for a fastball, spread them for a curveball, and get up and walk around if he didn't have the sign. You know how Sam has said on the podcast that he doesn't believe it when hitters say that they don't want to know which pitch is coming. Well, Eddie addresses that too. Some of our hitters, including me, didn't want the signs. Our pitcher who was sitting in the scoreboard once asked me why I didn't want to know what pitch was coming. I told him I didn't look for specific pitches because Rogers Hornsby, who was with us in spring training as a coach and was one of the greatest hitters of all time, had advised me to just hit what I saw. Of course, Hornsby was so good he could just react to the pitch. I probably shouldn't have followed his advice because I wasn't as good a hitter and needed all the help I could get. I should have been looking for pitches. Joe Gordon, Ken Keltner, and some of the others may have benefited from getting the signs, but it sure didn't help me. Of course, we didn't have the signs on the road, and it had no impact on the playoff game against the Red Sox in Boston or in the World Series. Over the years, a number of teams have been accused of stealing signs from the scoreboard, such as the New York Giants in the old polo grounds, the Brooklyn Dodgers in Ebbets Field, and the Cubs in Wrigley Field. But I've always thought sign-stealing from way out there was overrated, and that it rarely, if ever, has had any impact on the outcome of a game. So, the more things change. That's another example of team doing the same sort of things today that they used to do then. Although, maybe not with a telescope, maybe with a high-speed camera. Anyway, Eddie's 99th birthday is December 15th, so think of him on that day. The oldest living player, by the way, is Val who played 13 games for the White Sox in August and September 1942. So he actually made his Major League debut just a little bit over a week before Eddie did. And then Valheim went off to military service. He went and enlisted in the Navy also. But unlike Eddie, he didn't make it back to the big leagues after the war. Eddie, by the way, finished with a 113 OPS+. He was quite a good hitter in his prime. He started the 1949 and 1952 All-Star Games for the AL at first base. So that 1949 AL lineup, Dom DiMaggio, George Kell, Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio, Eddie Juist, and Eddie Robinson first six hitters by the way paul richards the former manager who was such a big influence on eddie you heard him talking about him he was the wizard of Waxahachi, and he was the one who reintroduced what has come to be called the Waxahachi swap where you move a pitcher out to a position to gain the platoon advantage and then move that pitcher back from the field to the mound that was a classic paul richards move so, thanks for listening this week. Thanks to Sam and Meg for holding down the fort in my absence. And you can help support the podcast and keep us going by pledging on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already pledged their support. Mark Sabah, Finn mchattie Straley, John Giles, Nishant Menon, and Jacob Kagey. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcastatfangraphs.com. Or via the Patreon messaging system If you are a supporter Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance We hope you have a wonderful weekend And we will be back with another episode early next week But I think I've got the perfect way to end this one We didn't talk about it with Eddie But he and his wife Betty Got married after the 1955 World Series Which I think means that they just celebrated Their 64th wedding anniversary So in their honor Here are the Crystals in 1963 Singing, I love you Eddie But so does Betty
0: I love you What's up?